Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, President of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And welcome back, and we're going to be talking with Pastor Paul Jaley. He is author and historian. Uh, he is uh, president of the Plymouth Rock Foundation in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And of, and of course, this is the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we can't uh, bring you to Plymouth this year, as all the festivities due to COVID-19 have been postponed until uh, 2021. But we can bring Plymouth to you, and that's what we're going to do at the annual Freedom Banquet of the Ohio Christian Alliance, and that's coming up on July 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Akron Fairlawn Hilton. We're also going to have Auditor of State Keith Faber will be with us. State Treasurer Robert Sprague will be with us, and our keynote speaker is Pastor and Historian Paul Jaley. Uh, Pastor Jaley and his congregation actually engage in reenactments and seminars all summer long in Plymouth, and they actually tell the history and the story of the pilgrims and their spiritual quest to seek out religious liberty in the new world. Uh, Welcome uh, with me, Pastor Paul Jaley. Pastor, welcome. Very good. Good to be with you, Chris. Well, thank you, Pastor. And, you know, my wife and I, Sylvia, we've really enjoyed the last few summers coming up and visiting with you and, of course, walking Freedom Trail and uh, with Richard Holland, <laughs> a mutual friend, and spending some time at Plymouth and Boston and then going into southern Maine. We've actually really enjoyed that. Last summer we weren't able to do it. We missed it. She wants to get back up there, and we had such a tremendous time and really enjoyed the history of the region and, of course, your congregation and the people of the Plymouth Rock Foundation do such a wonderful work in retaining our history and our culture of our spiritual founding 400 years ago with the Plymouth Landings. Yeah, well, great. Now, that's great that you have enjoyed that. And, uh, of course, this year it's been a little bit different. <laughs> to say the least, and of course, we're so glad that you're going to be with us on the 23rd. I also got your book in the mail, The Journey of Faith, Why the Pilgrims Came. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, let's talk about really, sure. the. first of all, I want to get a little background about yourself, how you got involved with all this. Of course, there's the Ginny Museum as well, and our friend there, and uh, the work that you do with the tours. Tell us a little bit about what goes on with the Plymouth Rock Foundation and the Ginny Museum. Well, Plymouth Rock Foundation was started in 1970. It's the 350th anniversary of the arrival of the Pilgrims. Uh, And uh, I got involved in about 1978 when the executive director, the founder was John Talcott, uh, but the executive director, Russ Walton, um, began to impart his history to me. Uh, John Talcott had opened his primary source library, and so I began to study uh, the history of Plymouth and the history of America from primary sources rather than all the secondary and third sources I had studied in college. And I wasn't a history major, but I fell in love with history from a providential perspective. And back there in the 1970s, I began to do some walking tours of Plymouth in 1978 at the National Monument to the Forefathers, the big monument that became the theme of uh, Kirk Cameron's Monumental uh, about 10 years ago. And so uh, that's how I got started. And I began to do... uh, Pilgrim Tours uh, trained my students in the Christian school and the history class that I was uh, leading at the time, and um, uh, then all throughout the 80s and 90s was doing the same. 
And uh, so it's been a real uh, journey and uh, a blessing to be able to do that. And uh, now, of course, I don't do tours every day. I don't do it full time and never have. But at the same time, uh, giving walking tours in the places where the pilgrims actually came has been uh, a tremendous uh, experience. And we love to do that because most of the people who come to Plymouth have never really heard what the pilgrims believed or why they came. It's been pretty much a footnote in history and left out of most of our textbooks. Well, that's right. And what we're seeing actually play out across America right now is the I Hate America crowd. I mean, we're seeing the tearing down of monuments of Christopher Columbus here in Columbus, Ohio, actually named after Columbus, uh, and actually the sister city in uh, Genoa, Italy, 65 years ago, gave the Christopher Columbus statue uh, there in Columbus, Ohio, and the, the, the silly Democratic liberal mayor had it uh, taken down last week to the chagrin of many residents of the area, the Italian-American community, for sure, and many people around the state. Uh, we posted that up, and they did it in the middle of the night. Uh, they didn't do a referendum. They didn't take a vote. They didn't have any community input. But we're seeing this eradication of our history, Paul, across the country. So what you're doing in Plymouth and keeping the history alive is so vital right now. Well, you know, the critical thing is the only reason why there aren't more individuals who want to do it in due process. If they're really going to remove a statue, have a discussion, uh, vote on it, do it the right way, is because we don't know our history. Uh, most people can't mount an opposition because they don't really know the original story. And uh, there are no perfect people in history. There are no pilgrims weren't perfect. And uh, there are always, whenever you have people involved in any event, there are positives and negatives. But in the past, we always emphasized that things was, that was best about a character or their history, knowing there were weaknesses, and those weaknesses would teach us not to repeat them. But today, again, most of this is what's happening now is a reaction, not an action based on the truth of history, but a reaction to what people think happened. And because of our ignorance, uh, most people can't mount an intellectual defense, and that's, that's a real sad situation. But it comes out of, out of years, decades of teaching, or we might say decades of not teaching our actual history. And because of that, uh, I think people don't appreciate those things any longer. Uh, let's face it, whatever we said before our children uh, as the most important things are the things they're going to cherish. And um, we're no longer doing that anymore. We're no longer elevating the best character. And we're doing it from a reactive base. And a lot of that is, of course, driven by socialism and Marxism. Well, that's like why a lot of Christians over the last few decades have chosen to teach at home. They knew that there was a new secularism, actually uh, an antagonistic attitude towards faith, uh, towards our founding, towards uh, uh, the wonderful birth of this nation, and of course— Throughout our history, they knew there was an antagonism in the classroom as uh, universities were teaching what would be the teachers in the classroom, more of a, a secular view, but we can even now say a Marxist view, uh, and you know that is uh, basically very antagonistic or uh, in opposition to 
what we are as a Judean Christian culture. We see on college campuses, for instance, the growing of an anti-Semitic movement. Uh, We're supporting Kufi, Christians United for Israel, and one of the they just finished their virtual conference because they couldn't have their annual conference in Washington D.C. because of COVID nineteen. But they had a virtual conference, and again, they said anti-Semitism is on the the grow here in America. Well, why is that happening? Well, again, uh, the attacks against our Judean Christian culture, and we're seeing actually Christians being targeted. So, Paul, I mean, when we talk about our spiritual founding in Plymouth, uh, this is the 400th anniversary. You and succession of other historians keeping it alive in Plymouth. And folks, uh, I would say next year, make your plans to be in Plymouth uh, with the Jenna Museum and the Plymouth Rock Foundation and Paul Jaley and the congregation and, and some of the festivities that they are engaged in because uh, I'm telling you, you won't regret it. It's a wonderful place to visit, especially in the summer, and uh, you'll you'll really be enriched by the history of who the pilgrims were in their spiritual quest to come. And as I like what you say, Paul, it's a church plant. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, the actual pilgrims, of course, when they came here in 1620, uh, came as a church. Most people are unaware of that, uh, even though uh, there were others on the Mayflower other than members of their church. The majority were members of the church. And um, they came here to transplant their church from Leiden, Holland, to the wilderness of New England. And their goal from their pastor, John Robinson, was that they would begin to be a stepping stone to birthing a measure of the kingdom of God in those remote parts of the world, as they said. And uh, the the motives were very clear. And uh, America was born, especially in New England in 1620, as a church plant that was going to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in harmony with one another, as well as uh, ministering to their neighbors. And in large part, nobody fulfills their mission, of course, perfectly, but in large part, they were able to do that. I like to look at it this way, that if you were to take uh, some Christians and, and God were to say, gee, what kind of society would they produce if we took these Christians with their Bibles and uh, from a church that had been through some refining fires and were walking together in unity, what would they produce? Well, of course, what they did produce was a commonwealth and a, a one that they could uh, have the Ten Commandments on the basis of God's law, the basis of their society. And this produced a tremendous amount of liberty over, over the years and freedom of conscience. Uh, of course, it was set in context of the times, but this is the key thing to see the hope that comes when Christianity is the foundation of something. And uh, that's what the pilgrims brought here. And when people see that, they begin to say, wow, okay, that's amazing, because they see the cause and the effect. And that's why we like to illustrate that when we give our tours and when we look at it. And uh, you mentioned, of course, the Jenny Museum, uh, now called the Jenny, but uh, Leo Martin there and other tour guides will do tours every single day whenever you come to Plymouth. But of course, we are now replanning and resetting dates 2021 for our celebration. We're talking with Paul Jaley. He is the director of the Plymouth Rock Foundation in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Of course, this is the 400th year since the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth and, of course, uh, founded their new community and uh, looking for and experiencing religious liberty and began to minister uh, to the Indian tribes that they had engaged with uh, there in the New World. I'm reading here from the uh, leaf of your book from William Bradford in his uh his commentary, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God in his grace? May not 
And ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean, and were ready to perish in this wilderness? But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice, and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercies endureth forever. So writes William Bradford, historian and governor of Plymouth Plantation. What I like, Paul, is that uh, what you shared with us about William Bradford's, uh, uh, basically his journal uh, about the Ply- the Plymouth Landing and the, the Pilgrims, and that the British, uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War, had actually taken it back to the archives of uh, uh, the British government, but it was discovered not too long ago. Tell us about that. Yes, the uh, actual journal from William Bradford, he began that journal about 10 years after they arrived in 1630. And uh, he was a phenomenal writer. In fact, it was the first classic on American soil, as many literary uh, uh, scholars would tell us. And it gave a first-hand view of the day-to-day life and, of course, the philosophy behind the colony itself. And you can actually get that book today. But, you know, the amazing thing is that um, when that was done, he passed it on to his son, Major Bray Major Bradford. And then he also, uh, throughout the years, it kept kept getting passed down, and yet the book went through a tremendous amount of trials itself, uh, being the house burned down it was in, and that was one of the only books uh, saved, and then a flood, and it eventually ended up with Thomas Prince, who was pastor of the Old South Church in Boston. And in the, in the Old South Church steeple is where they kept their rare book library. Well, it comes to find out that after Thomas Prince had long since gone, the American Revolution was there, and uh, when the British took over the church during their occupation of Boston, uh, they began to break up the pews and, uh, and turn it into a riding stable and were desecrating the internal aspect of the church because the British knew that the church was really the heartbeat of the American Revolution. That's where the clergy were really preaching the principles of liberty. And so uh, they began to burn the old books and start their fires in that uh, church, and uh, evidently someone may have seen what it was, and they put it in a satchel, and somehow it made its way, did not get burned miraculously, and took over, taken back over to England. And uh, it had been quoted from just prior to the Civil War, and uh, American historians said, wow, it must still exist, because they all thought it would had been gone. Uh, other historians prior to the American Revolution had at least quoted from it. They knew such a book existed. And then in the 1890s, uh, Senator Hoare from Massachusetts, who was a descendant of the Pilgrims himself, went over on vacation and tried to locate the book. And on his last day over there, he found out that uh, someone knew the Bishop of London uh, in the library there, and he was able to go and finally hold it in his hands and say, by God's grace, it's got to come back to America. And of course it did, about 1897, and so it hasn't been here that long. And the original still is in Boston in the archives, but then it got translated, facsimile copies made, and so we have that original history of William Bradford. And one person put it this way, he said, boy, the book itself went through almost all the same trials the Pilgrims did. And uh, that book, of course, gives us the true history of the plantation itself. And that's so that's so wonderful to have that, and of course to align with the his, history that we know about the Pilgrims. Let's talk about them. How many souls came over on the Mayflower? There were about 102 people who actually came on the Mayflower. Of course, they had two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. The Speedwell began springing leaks. The later Bradford writes that he thinks the captain did it on purpose, 
because he didn't want to make the trip. Remember, in 1620, uh, you didn't just get in a boat and go across the ocean. This was no easy task, and, and never did women and children go. It was very unique for them to come as families, not only to come as a church, but to come as families, at least several family units, 24 in all. And some of them had just fathers and sons and mothers and, and uh, husbands and whatnot, but uh, it was very rare to do that. And, of course, they all crammed on board the Mayflower after that other ship had to go back from Plymouth, England. Uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts wasn't named after Plymouth, England. It was uh, uh, named by John Smith when he wrote his little map after Jamestown. But you had this, these people coming over here uh, on the Mayflower, about 102 of them. About 70 to 72 of them were from the Leiden congregation. And here they come. And, and land here, and one of the first things they do, as you read that quote, was kneel down and give God the glory and, and grace. And then they wrote a covenant called the Mayflower Compact to maintain and preserve unity, um, because they had been trained that way from their pastor. Uh, John Robinson, their pastor, is the patriot pastor that's the unsung hero in all this. He doesn't come over, but he's the one that taught and trained them to study the Word of God, to be able to think independently from Scripture and reason from Scripture. And some of his writings, which I reveal in my book, uh, Journey of Faith, that I wanted to have published for the 400th anniversary, you get a little glimpse into the brilliance of this pastor. And part of the testimony of the pastor is the fact that he sent uh, probably the core of his congregation out to the wilderness, didn't go himself, because the majority, uh, about 250 others, remained in Leiden. And here is a man that was able to send his congregation and have confidence that they could go without him. They were so well taught. So it's amazing that this group uh, was so salty that even those that were, some of whom may not have been Christians and others from the Anglican Church that they separated from, were all able to work in a high level of unity when they got here. When they got here, and of course that first winter was brutal, and how many perished on that first winter? Well, just about half, their number perished, and um, they thought it was a, a blessing that more children were survived in proportion than the adults, because they were here for the future. But you had four whole families were wiped out, and only about four families were actually remained intact after that uh, first winter. And uh, yet their testimony of helping those that were sick, the crew members and others who didn't appreciate their faith, was a powerful testimony. Uh, of this pilgrim band. And then they were down to only about 51. And of course, when the Mayflower returned uh, in late March of uh, 1621, not one pilgrim from that church went back. Only the crew that were left that hadn't perished went back with Captain Jones. And that's a powerful statement that they were here committed for the future. And as they said, to be stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work of manifesting the kingdom. That's why telling this story, especially to believers who should appreciate it the most, tells a story of how a modern group, modern in the sense of the Scriptures, uh, were able to, as a church, go and begin to manifest a society built on biblical principles. And that's what we have inherited as Americans, a powerful example of that. We can learn from them, we can uh, see the Phenomenal prose of, of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, the tremendous quotes incorporating Christian uh, thoughts and ideas from the Scriptures, and see what they were able to produce. And that's why this history is so important, and it's been largely ignored. Uh, and uh, not till just recently has it actually been 
attacked, even though it's been somewhat ignored. And then uh, we get to the place that, you know, when there's widespread ignorance about history, we make it very easy for others with a different kind of motives to distort it. And yet there's many people that come to Plymouth Rock uh, every year, of course, and visit Plymouth. And your ministry of the actual tours that you conduct to tell the true history of the pilgrims and the reenactments, I think, means so much to the families who come, and the Ginny Museum, of course, and uh, the monument, the Forefathers Monument. And uh, I thought what Kurt Cameron did with his uh, video uh, presentation was so important because it, it it shined a light on an area of our history that needs to uh, be rekindled again. It needs to be relooked at. And so in this year, Paul, of course, you and I, I, I think of the pilgrims. I mean, I, I, I think as a Christian and I, as an American, I, I look at my roots as uh, 400 years ago in 1620 when they came, and they came for religious liberty. And so in my heart, in my spirit, I think about those, uh, you know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, and the, the birthing of that uh, evangelism that took place on the shores of Plymouth, and the friendship and the fostering that they did with the Native tribes. What I like what I like about your uh, presentation in Plymouth is talking about the Indian revivals that took continued up until about 50 years ago. Tell us about that, just how the continuation of the gospel and the ministry took place all these years later. Well, one of the things that William Bradford believed in and did was make friends with the peace, peace with the chief Massasoit of the Wampanoag. And uh, what he did was to agree that any land that would be uh, purchased would be uh, duly uh, at least attempted to have a deed written for that uh, kind of transaction to build as much respect as possible. The amazing thing is that following the pilgrims, peaceful relationships with the Wampanoag, and they were never perfect, but they were very peaceful, and especially in contrast to a lot of the other things that we see in American history. Uh, what ended up happening is several missionaries began coming and working among the Native American tribes, and they had tremendous success because there was a revival that broke out on Martha's Vineyard and on Cape Cod uh, in this area. And those, a lot of those revivals continued throughout the years. They, they would be interrupted with various things, but you'd have a, had another revival around the time of the American Revolution, early 1800s, uh, and um, right up until the end of the uh, 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, uh, especially on Martha's Vineyard, the island of revival, we like to call it, just off the shores of Cape Cod. So yeah, these are, these are legacies that we see. And one of the things that it really dispels is this myth that some had in Europe at the time, and others, that somehow other tribes and whatnot, because they couldn't read or write, that they were somehow less intelligent. How crazy that would be. That's just, just like the crazy notion that uh, individuals that, uh, of, that don't look the same as you do don't have the same intelligence. In fact, what they found out was these individuals not only were tremendously intelligent and very, very uh, articulate, uh, that after they learned to read and we learned to learn to understand their language, we found out that these individuals were phenomenal preachers and phenomenal evangelists. And so you begin to see a different viewpoint, that Christ comes to liberate all. Christ comes to deal with all people. And that's uh, an amazing story that we can learn. And you can see the germ of it, the seed of it, uh, in a small group of people called the Pilgrims. 
We're talking with Paul Jaley. He will be the keynote speaker at the annual Freedom Banquet of the Ohio Christian Alliance. That will be on July 23rd at the Akron Fairlawn Hilton. And, of course, uh, it's our annual dinner. It's a great event, and we hope that you'll join us. In fact, you can register at our website at ohioca.org or just Google Ohio Christian Alliance. We're going to give uh, honor to the men and women in blue that night and those first responders uh, during COVID-19. And, of course, we're going to be honoring Plymouth, the 400th anniversary of our spiritual founding as a nation. And this is the 400th year of the Pilgrim's Landing. And, of course, uh, Paul will be speaking. Uh, Paul, when you think about this. I like your new book, and, and I've just been reading it today. I just got it last night, Journey of Faith. Uh, what do you want people to come away with after reading the book? I think one of the key things that uh, I wrote the book for was to know the true motive for why the pilgrims came. There are all kinds of things attributed to them, uh, some good, some not so good, some accurate, some not accurate, but the point is that they came here by the journey of the light of Christ that had done a tremendous work in them uh, converting them, and then bringing the Christian character into their lives. And I think when people see the journey of faith, when they read through this book, they will recognize, and I use a lot of copious quotes from the pilgrims themselves, so you can read it from their pastor, from themselves, and say, gee, I- I'd taken this right from their words, right in their context. You can see what happened, and to a large degree, it was a tremendous, noble experiment of what it is like to live for Jesus Christ. In, uh, in a context of church life with family. And that we need restored again in our nation today. You can go on our website, plimrock, P-L-Y-M-R-O-C-K.org, and get more information about that and other things. And of course, come to the banquet, and uh, we'll be having those books and many other materials there. Absolutely. Paul, thank you for being my guest today. And again, just Google Plymouth Rock Foundation, and we hope that you make an opportunity next year to visit them uh, during the summer months for some of the tours and reenactments. Paul, thanks for being my guest today. All right. God bless you. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon, my friend. Okay. And again, on our website at ohioca.org is where you can register for the Freedom Banquet, July 23rd. We hope to see you then. God bless. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe, on D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue
Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. We're going to be continuing our discussion about the destruction at the Ohio State House that took place on May 28th and on June 18th. And back on June 19th, the Ohio Christian Alliance released the following statement. Destruction at the Ohio State House. Governor DeWine, we urge you to protect the people's house. For the second time in three weeks, the Ohio State House fell victim to extensive vandalism as protesting vandals, anarchists yesterday, that was back on uh, June 18th, uh, in the afternoon in broad daylight defaced much of the State House grounds, including the Ohio State motto emblem, the war memorials, the Holocaust memorial, and the steps and pillars at the Ohio State House. OCA has learned through a 911 call recording that the Columbus Police Department was aware of the protest and that the stopping of traffic on High Street, but as you will hear in the audio clip, uh, the officer tells the gentleman that they have been told to stand down by Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginter, and that has been verified through other sources as well. Uh, We played that audio clip on a previous broadcast. It's available on our website. At the same time of this 911 call, where this gentleman is being stopped on High Street by a group of protesters, again, this is in the afternoon on June 18th, a small group of protesters turned vandals as they, according to Highway Patrol, rushed the building with buckets of red paint defacing the war memorials, Ohio State motto seal, State House steps, pillars, and building with graffiti and red paint. Uh, we made this statement. Um, we had actually uh, spoke with uh, Larry Oboff, the Senate president, and uh, the Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, who was on this program just two weeks ago, uh, who announced that he was going to look into it with hearings, and he said, we have subpoena power. Uh, going down to our statement, it says, these are distressing times when we are witnessing the defacing of the seats of government for nearly two decades. It has been my honor to represent the faith community and to address public policy issues at the People's House in Columbus. Our state capital. In the 163 years of the existence of the Ohio State House, this level of vandalism has never occurred. This is a watershed moment. We are a nation of laws, and what is being displayed before the people of Ohio at this time is a breakdown of law and order. I have been in contact with dozens of Ohioans over the last few weeks who are alarmed and troubled by what they see in our state's capital. We are calling on Governor DeWine to take action. It is your duty, Governor, to protect the people's house and the citizenry. You have at your command two policing authorities, the State Highway Patrol and the Ohio National Guard. As you have often said in your daily press briefings, the buck stops with you. Therefore, we call on you to take action. Please protect the people's house, the seat of our state government. We as people of faith will continue to pray for peace and civility to prevail throughout our state and nation. And Governor DeWine did release a statement that very day. Here's what he said. I have spoken with the Ohio State Highway Patrol Colonel Richard Fambro about Secretary Uh, about the security, rather, at the Ohio State House, and I shared with him my anger and disgust at the vandalism that occurred there yesterday. I support the right to peacefully protest. However, defacing, damaging, uh, and vandalizing our state capitol and its grounds are wrong, and such actions are criminal. The Ohio State Highway Patrol is conducting a criminal investigation into yesterday's acts, and they will send their findings to the appropriate authorities for potential prosecution. 
In a follow-up to that, the Ohio News Bureau actually put together uh, a report on the damages at the State House, and they were quoting uh, Senate President uh, Larry Oboff, who said that he had spoken with the city law director or the city attorney, who said that he was going to prosecute the 14 individuals that were arrested on uh, May 28th. But since that report, all charges have been dropped against the 14 individuals who were arrested on the night of vandalism of May 28th, and there has been no arrests uh, with the vandalism of June 18th. And this is, of course, very disconcerting to leadership at the Ohio House and Senate and also the people of Ohio. But I think uh, Speaker Householder is intent that he says we're going to get to the bottom of this. Let's talk about the expenses are racking up for the city of Columbus, uh, not to mention uh, basically the, the the message it sends about the kind of destruction and uh, the ongoing problems in downtown Columbus that are happening. Um, there was a report from Channel 6 News talking about uh, several million dollars worth of overtime and uh, destruction of property in downtown Columbus. This is apart from the State House. In the same report, uh, the D- director of Capitol Square and Revisory Board, Laura Batacleli, uh, she says at that time that there was over $200,000 worth of damages, but actually it's now north of 300000 and it could be as much as a half a million dollars of the damages at the Ohio State House. Well, since that time, we do have reports that uh, there are state highway patrolmen every day on the grounds of the Ohio State House standing next to the statues of the war memorials and some of the uh, other grounds around the State House. So there has been in increased uh, policing presence, which we're thankful for. And there's been, well, there has been other incidents. Uh, there's been more defacing and uh, graffiti on the outer wall of, of the State House. we're told, again, by people who live in Columbus and who tell us that. But uh, there's other issues that are going on here. So again, what was started as peaceful protest, uh, there was something more. We talked about that. And there was an element in Antifa, an anarchist group, and that's been detailed across the country now. Uh, these fe- these folks have no intent of actually sending a positive message, but rather a message of destruction. Uh, with us on the phone is Pastor John Coates from Columbus. He is the president of the Interdenominational Ministerial Alliance. He is also an elected official of the NAACP of Ohio. He was actually down there on the night of the protest that turned riots, and he has eyewitness reports. Pastor, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for for having me, Chris. Well, I want to play a clip that you and I both discussed. It's uh, Jeff Pastor. He is actually an African-American councilman from Cincinnati, and uh, this was a live report he was giving. This was either on May 28th or 29th because, again, there was protests that then turned uh, violent, uh, and he witnesses something that really disturbed him as an elected official. Let's play that. No, I've been down here, and we we first started on Main Street, and I saw that, you know, they were coming and they were getting a little aggressive. And so my idea was not not necessarily just to protect the cops, but it was just to protect the people. And and what I can't understand is that this is Cincinnati police. This is is not Minneapolis police. And, And what they're doing is just absolutely horrendous. As a member of city council, this is my first time ever seeing something like this. When this first happened in 2001, I was only 17 years old, right? I can't understand for the life of me what is going on right now in the city of Cincinnati. And I'm gonna be here until these folks and other folks are protected. Let me tell you something. There are people down here who are encouraging 14 year old kids 
These babies are 14 years old, man, and they're encouraging them to throw bottles at these cops. And these grown people are encouraging our babies to fight. This is not their fight. That is a report uh, from Cincinnati. That was uh, City Councilman Jeff Pastor talking about it was a protest, but then it began to turn uh, more into a riot, and he said there was other elements there. And we actually have reports now that pallets of bricks, and we've heard this around the country, we heard it in other cities, that these mysterious pallets of bricks were ordered and uh, through nefarious means and then placed in the area where the protest would be going down, but then later turned violent. Even people that, pro- that were part of the peaceful protest and sending a, a positive message about uh, let's have an open dialogue with uh, uh, the local police and about uh, you know p- police enforcement in the communities. And then something more happened, something violent, and the anarchists really took over and hijacked these protests. And let's talk about that, Pastor. You witnessed something similarly in Columbus. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. And um, on the Thursday evening, I believe it was May May twenty eighth. Um, I was in the middle of an international re- revival, and um, I had the television on. You know, you're online doing the Zoom, and then I'm looking at my television, and I see that there, 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 there's protests erupting in downtown Columbus. Now, I, I have questions about rather if the initial protests were peaceful protesters or not, because there's still some unanswered questions that we have as it relates to those who organized and have started at the protest. Um, uh, on that evening, I spoke to, to, to many black leaders from across the state of Ohio. None of us were responsible for um, these uprisings that took place in our cities throughout Ohio, especially in Columbus. No one could identify who was responsible for coordinating and organizing um, the assembly of people that seemed to just have magically appeared at, um, at, at, at night um, in downtown in downtown Columbus. So my question is, is that I don't know if it was a a, a a violent and a radical element that took over from peaceful protesting, or if that violent and radical element was already in existence, waiting to um, have some type of violent confrontation with law enforcement. That's an excellent point because, you know, you and I, we're close. We're, we're Facebook friends. We talk all the time. We talk about issues. And, um, you know, we each have our realms and we share. We, we share information. And that's why when I woke up in the morning and I saw the reports, I said, what in the world happened in Columbus last night? And look, you and I are pretty tuned in across the board with lots of communities across this state to have dialogue. And, and there's times we don't always agree, but hey, we have a civil dialogue, right? And so yeah. if there was going to be a peaceful protest about that and saying, hey, we want to bring the attention uh, to some people, we would have known about that. And that's I'm with you, Pastor. I'm like, what in the world happened in Columbus last night? And I'm I, this is interesting that you're telling us that you weren't aware of it as well. You're a resident of uh, Columbus. You're locked in. You're an elected official of the NAACP of Ohio. They certainly would have known if it was something uh, that was going to be addressed and wow i mean that is telling to me and you know a councilman pastor uh, down there in cincinnati i think his response which he got quite emotional and i understand him and i'm with him i i gotta tell you i've sh- i've shed a few tears through all this i mean for lots of folks man and what this means and you know and it's going to take the christian community to bridge the build you know build the bridges again 
okay? Because there are people that are out there just, they want to see, they just want to destroy. That, that, you know, it's like from the Batman movie. Sometimes there are people that just want to watch the world burn. Well, you know what, Christian? We are different. We are bridge builders. We are those who build relationships, and we're going to continue to do that. We're not going to let this, this anarchist uh, radical movement, and quite honestly, folks, a Marxist movement, what we're seeing here, and it's, it's not a, it doesn't have a basis of God in it. Uh, these folks are actually attacking Christian imagery, too, across the country. So there's something really weird and radical about all this. Pastor, your thoughts? Yes, and we ought to be also careful that as Christians that we are led by factual information and not manipulated by lies, even though they are often told. So they tell us that there were peaceful protests before protests became not peaceful, and that it became not peaceful because of the aggressive response of the police. Well, that didn't happen. Protesters, when at some point on, 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 that, on that Thursday evening, I went downtown to take a look to see what was going on for myself. What I saw was um, uh, bottles of frozen water that appeared. For the, the, I wonder how they got there. There were uh, sticks available with nails that were um, driven through them to be used like as, a, as, as weapons in the crowd. There were um, pallets of broken up concrete hand size to be thrown at the actual at the actual officers. So what I witnessed was um, I witnessed police use restraint against a very confrontational um, um, crowd. I didn't know where these people were from. I think they stirred it up and then maybe some kids came from that were in walking distance from to downtown because, you know, in the summertime, people want to be where the action is. Yes. So they, 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 they might have just walked into it and just want to see what was going on. And I watched um, other people that I know talk to the kids and tell them, put that down. Don't run. Go home. You know, this isn't um, this isn't what we protest. This isn't what we're what we're doing out here. And um, but yet there were elements that were there that I believe was um, groups um, uh, either and and the Antifa or or groups. I learned about another group called the Boogaloo and other groups that all these loosely cladded organizations that come to cities in order to force confrontation, to force confrontation with with law enforcement. Pastor, when we were talking on the phone, you used the word not organic. And I think what's interesting about that is that obviously the city of Columbus and its residents, and if people have issues with government, we have the right of protest. We defend that as an organization. I defend that as an individual. The right to peacefully assemble and to bring your redress of grievances before elected officials. But you're talking about, I mean, when you talk about frozen bottles, uh, sticks with nails, nails in them, pallets with broken concrete, um, the, the police using restraint, but being the object of uh, this uh, this hostilities, and then, of course, the people's house. Now, the Speaker of the House, he said that there was some interesting things going on with the police that night where they, you know, in every other city where there was riot, uh, protests, turned riots, and there was some destruction of property, in those cities it normally was municipal government that they were focusing on, like a police station or city hall or something like that. In Columbus... The police, they were heading down towards City Hall, 
and but yet they turned him up towards um, High Street, right in front of the State House grounds. Somebody has made the decision for that. They rushed the State House grounds, and in so doing, rushed the building. And that's when you had real problems with. I think the report was twenty-seven windows were broken out at the Ohio State House. The front door was compromised. I saw video of it. It was a little scary. I'll be honest with you. I, I wouldn't have wanted to been there uh, myself personally, and. I can't imagine what it was like for the handful of highway patrolmen that were on guard that night uh, at the Ohio State House, unawares of all this going on. They got no reports, so they probably would have had more in number. Uh, they had to later chase them out with tear gas out of the building because they came into the building. One individual was injured coming into the ceremonial office of the auditor and, uh, and actually cut himself on the glass and was bl- there was blood all over the aud- auditor's office, I'm told. And then they uh, basically ransacked the building. There was damages to senators' offices. The, you know, but what's interesting here, though, Pastor, and I've got to say, and the speaker's going to get to the bottom of it. We have saw the initial incident reports from the highway patrol, and there's something silly going on there uh, because their incident reports are very thin. And when you talk about the compiling of the damages that are known by the director of Cap Square already talking about 200,000-plus, and we can see the boarded-up windows, we hear of the reports from senators of the damages in the building and the extensive uh, cleanup and repairs that are taking place uh, something doesn't add up uh, because I we saw the actual two reports from the May 28th and June 18th. The highway patrol themselves need to be more transparent. I don't know who's trying to quell the information, but that's not good government. We believe in sunshine laws and we believe in exposure. So I want to say, hey, uh, you know, there's going to be some folks asking some questions and the speaker was intent. He's going to be bringing in city officials and members of the highway patrol. Look, we hold the law enforcement in high regard. Absolutely. But maybe there was officials higher up in the, the highway patrol that was uh, who knows uh, why they're not allowing that information to be available to the public? But it will be because uh, what you know you can't hide it forever. And there's also Columbus police reports uh, because they were also at the state house aiding the highway patrol in getting those rioters, actually anarchists at this point, out of the building. And they arrested 14. What is your thoughts as a resident of the city of Columbus that the city uh, attorney has now dropped all charges? What in the world's going on down there? Well, it, that that's that is disturbing. That, that those charges would be broken. Uh, I mean, would be dropped. Uh, it's also um, the, the disturbing of what they actually did to our state, to our state capitol, the same building where Lincoln's body lied in state, um, and and that he uh, spoke in, within the well of the of the of the, of the house chamber as as well. That the people would find it necessary uh, to. To the unnecessary, and that is to deface um, this beautiful piece of property that's done nothing to them within the city of Columbus. However, the city attorney may have uh, uh, finding ways to drop charges against the anarchists. However, our our county prosecutor has has not. Our, our county prosecutor has uh, aggressively um, have taken video footage, DNA evidence, and even um, um, filed charges against um, someone that caused massive damage, over $275,000 worth of damage to our um, Adam H. Agency. That's the alcohol drug in um, and mental health agency of Franklin County. They went in and broke all the windows inside, started a fire within the building as well. They uh, 
investigation. They were able to identify um, who was responsible for it. They have been arrested, and, um, and, 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 and charges have been filed, and there's um, a, a, a very high bond on this individual. So it, it, everyone doesn't necessarily have the mentality, say, of our city attorney. The other side of it, Chris, when you look at the damage that was done, um, the, the, the question begs an answer as to how come we couldn't turn our television sets on during the evening news and see that damage. Right. So I don't I, I, I don't know if there was a willingness of the media to um to actually record what was actually taking place. Um, and that's the inside, because they kept on with this narrative of peaceful protesters, peaceful protesters, peaceful protesters, and that protesters that were being, quote-unquote, antagonized by, by, by the police departments. That seemed to be the storyline, not just um, in Columbus, but across the country as well. So when we talk about that which is organic and that which isn't organic, what happened in Minneapolis could have been considered organic. Someone is, is, is killed, people gather, people get angry yes. on the spot. But, but several days later, several days later, um, on the corner of Broad and High, that there's, <laughs> that there's a, um, a massive group of people that gathered who sent the message out. Got the news out. Was it was uh, was somebody? Was there somebody blowing a trumpet, or was there text messages sent to people throughout the um, the city or throughout the region to gather in Columbus at any particular time? Um, not only do I believe that the state police or our highway patrol has information, but I believe there's intelligence reports also. There must be that indicates how this thing was actually put together. Pastor, that is good information because that's the big question here. And I would like to see the 14 that were arrested. And I think the charge has been dropped, but again, they're going to be refiled. And we're going to see how this plays out. Of those 14 individuals that were arrested on the, on the night of May 28th, it would be interesting to see if they were residents of Ohio or if they were residents of Columbus and exactly who they were. Uh, so that's going that this isn't the end of it, folks. We're going to get to the bottom of it. The Speaker of the Ohio House has said so. Uh, other elected officials are uh, intent on getting to the bottom of what happened on the night of May 28th and June 18th. But, Pastor, we have to have you back because, unfortunately, things are still happening in Columbus. There's still the spontaneous uh, uh blocking of roadways, uh, people being surrounded by their cars, uh, being accosted. Uh, we actually have reports of people leaving the state house who have their cars have been surrounded and pounded on and uh, had bottles thrown at their cars. These are state house uh, employees. And so there will need to be more security and policing downtown. And so this, this story is not at an end, is it? No, 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 it is not. And, um, and I'm grateful that some of the images that we were able to see from downtown came from Speaker Householder himself. So we thank him for taking pictures and showing us what things look like downtown. But I'm appreciative, though, of the governor for not calling out the National Guard or for there not being shots fired. We would have had another Kent State on our hands on that evening. And um, it, it, it could have been a linchpin to call some other activities um, to happen throughout the rest of the country. So I know it was a difficult call to make, rather to aggressively deal with the violent protesters um, at that time, but it may have prevented 
something else larger from taking place. The balance of enforcement and restraint is important. I agree. We're going to be praying. We're going to have you back, Pastor. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. God bless. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.